0: I want to begin by talking about um, the attacks that happened, or more protests, I guess, and a few attacks in the Middle East just last month, that all began with a small YouTube trailer, 11 minutes long, 15 minutes long, 14 minutes long, somewhere, somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes anyway, called The Innocence of Muslims and uh, nobody i think even today is quite sure who did the film i mean we know some of the producers and whatnot but it's a little vague and i don't know that anybody is completely sure who translated it into arabic and started disseminating it throughout um you know the the muslim world in the middle east we do know that some of the attacks that were associated with it were not in fact associated with it at all um the death of the american ambassador in libya had nothing to do with this video that was an al-qaeda attack but initially we thought it was but what's interesting about this is just a small, very poorly produced YouTube video sparked a series of protests in which our emissaries all over the world were... um, Attacked, I guess you can call it. I mean, it wasn't violent, most of it, but there was vandalism done. There was a school that was looted. There was a number of other things, and it just began to spread all throughout the Middle East. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about in regard to that, but what I want to focus on is this idea that just a very small little thing can spark such an enormous result. A small little YouTube video, and suddenly... Muslims all over the world are up in arms and attacking the United States. Now, I don't want to talk about whether um, how we should respond to that or anything else, but just to observe that it takes a very small spark sometimes to start a very large fire. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. History is replete with this. World War I started in a similar way, and we could get into that if we wanted to, but I don't. But in fact, the tale is as old as Genesis itself, isn't it? The tale of very small things, somehow steamrolling into huge things, almost inexplicably. In the book of Genesis, which is where we'll be today, the corruption of God's creation that began to take hold in the wake of Eve and Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, it spread something like this YouTube video. It just, it went viral. Somehow... It started with one small decision in front of a tree, and the next thing we know in the narrative, the earth has gotten so bad in the span of six chapters that God has decided to destroy all life on earth, sparing only one human family and a small handful of the animals that populated the planet. Now, in the wake of that judgment, God promised never to destroy the earth again with a flood. So maybe we would think, okay, job done. You did it. It was horrible. That was probably violent. I'm glad I didn't see it. I'm glad it's not narrated. I'm glad Noah was shut up on the ark. He didn't have to witness what happened. But it's done, right? It accomplished its purpose. Evil has been purged. The world is good. The corruption and evil that had overwhelmed the pre-flood world, it remained. And it persisted throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. In fact, by the time we reach chapter 18, which is our immediate context today, we find that two powerful and wealthy cities, two metropolises of the ancient world, something maybe like, I don't know, Manchester and Nashua, maybe even as big as Boston and New York, but big cities uh, by the standards of the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah, they had become so wicked and so corrupt that God had determined to destroy them as He had at one time decided to destroy the entire earth. And as He had in the flood, God spared one human family from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the family of Lot. And this is where we find ourselves today. It's in the aftermath of that destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, after Lot and his family have fled, and they find themselves living in a cave uh, in what would have been the outskirts, probably, maybe distant outskirts, but the outskirts of those cities which no longer existed anymore. Genesis chapter 19 So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to follow along with me as I read from Genesis 19, beginning in verse 30. And I want to give warning, if you have read through the Bible, you've read this passage. Um, But this is one of those passages, I think, that we read it and then we say, oh, why is that in there? And then we move on, but we're going to linger today. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 30, I'm reading from the NIV. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father." That night, they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. Very important name. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. What an uplifting passage, right? (laughs) You wanted me to keep going. Maybe we'd get to something good. (laughs) I mean, at its heart, Genesis 19:30 30 to 38 is a story about incest as the origin of two nations who would harass the people of Israel throughout the rest of their history. Have you heard this passage preached on its own before? I haven't. Well, I did, because I preached it once before, but uh, not before that. And honestly, are we really surprised? I mean, who would preach from this text? This is not on the short list of stories to teach to the kids out of Genesis, right? <laughs> It's not exactly a story that begs to be applied to our lives. Or does it? However, some weeks ago, as we were ending our time in Grain Valley with the small congregation that I was pastoring, I challenged them to give me a passage that they had never heard preached from. And I promised I would preach it before I left. And uh, I will never do that again. (laughs) This was it. And uh, I, I don't mean to put you through it, but the Lord seems to want you to sit through it if I'm reading Him correctly, and you can tell me whether I'm right about that at the end. How are we going to make sense of these events that occurred in the life of Lot? Why did the prophetic tradition of Israel preserve this story? I mean, what purpose does it serve in the book of Genesis? I mean, Lot's daughters get him drunk, they commit incest with him, two nations descend from those biblically vile acts. I mean, is this just a smear campaign on Moab and Ammon? Moses or whoever wrote Genesis, sitting around the campfire with some friends, and they're saying, but you know, I hate those Moabites, I can't stand those people. And somebody says, you know, they're just descendants of incest. Really? Really? Well, let's put that in the book. Is it just a little convenient FYI? I don't think that this uncomfortable story should be dismissed that easily. In fact, on a closer reading, the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that that precipitated it... is similar in so many respects to the story of Noah and the flood that I suspect that the writers of Genesis intended us to read these two stories side by side in order to understand what the prophetic tradition of Israel was trying to communicate through them. In fact, by reading the stories side by side, this rather strange tale of nation-building through drunkenness and incest begins to take on greater significance. And essentially, at the heart of both stories, and these are our two points today... I believe lie the twin dilemmas of the pervasiveness of evil and the challenge of retaining our faith in God in such a world as this. Now, there are just too many verses for us to read through the entirety of the story of Noah and the flood and the entirety of Lot's story in this sort of a context, so you can relax. I have no intention of putting you through that today. Instead, I want to summarize the highlights, the ways in which Noah's experiences and Lot's experiences have been compared and contrasted in Genesis, and I think out of that will come some meaning. Hopefully substantial meaning, we'll see. In both the days of Noah and of Lot, God had determined to pass judgment on an apparently irredeemable people. God's decision in both cases was not some sort of redemption, it was not to send a prophet, it was not to send some sort of a message inviting the people to change their ways or to turn back. He didn't elect to do any of those things. Somehow God's decision was total annihilation. In Noah's case, the judgment was to fall on all the earth. In Lot's case, it was just to fall in the twin cities in which he and his family lived. But let's face it, if you lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, it might as well be the whole earth, right? I mean, if God wiped Concord off the map, everyone who lives there could probably care less what happens in Jerusalem because their home is gone. But despite the differences in scope, both these stories narrate the violent response of God to intractable, apparently intractable evil. And in both stories, God elected to spare one family out of the many. Genesis tells us that Noah was spared, do you remember? Because of his righteousness before God. And Lot wasn't spared for his righteousness, we're not told that. He was spared probably because he was the nephew of Abraham. And Abraham was chosen by God. But whatever the reason for their salvation, both Noah's family and that of Lot were spared a judgment that fell on the rest of the people with whom they were living. So that's a parallel. In the case of Noah, his entire family obeyed God and they all survived the judgment. Noah, his wife, his sons and his sons' wives. they all. Nobody said, Noah, you're crazy. There's no flood coming and refused to get on the ark. They all went on and they all were saved. In the case of Lot, however... His sons-in-law, his daughters' husbands, or husbands-to-be, it's unclear, um, were not convinced that the judgment was really coming. They refused to follow Lot, even though they were offered, just like in the case of Abraham. And when God's judgment did come, Lot's own wife turned back and looked on the cities, were not really told what her heart, where her heart was, but it apparently did not please God because she was turned into a pillar of salt. So only Lot survives the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with his two daughters. And that puts the survival of his family into much greater peril than that of Noah. And that might explain a little bit why they go to the extremes that they do, but only mildly. So parallels. Then, after having survived God's judgment and retaking the earth, Genesis tells us that Noah does what we expect a righteous person to do, right? He builds an altar. That's good, but the second thing he does doesn't turn out so well. He plants a vineyard, he grows the grapes, he ferments the grapes, he drinks, and he gets drunk. And then he does something that the Hebrew says, uh, well, the Hebrew. what does the Hebrew say? Who even knows? It says he exposed his nakedness in his tent. Now, that, that could mean some specific things. My tendency is to think it means a very generic thing. That is a phrase used in Hebrew to say that a person does something sinful. They do, they do something shameful. Now, it can relate to sexual behavior, but it doesn't have to. And so whatever Noah did, he got drunk and he did something that was undignified in a sinful sense. He sinned. Who knows what he did, but he sinned. Lot, too. Do you notice the parallel? After surviving God's judgment, he, too, became drunk. Now, it was his daughter's idea, not his, but he certainly went along with it. And then he himself was involved in shameful behavior. We don't know what Noah's shameful behavior was, but we do know what Lot's was. You see the parallels? In response to Noah's shameful behavior, one of his sons, Ham exposes his father's nakedness. So again, we don't know what that means, but what it does clearly imply is that he went in there, saw his father doing something he shouldn't have been doing, and decided it was time to get the rumor mill going. And he went running out and went and told his brothers, look at what dad's doing in his tent! Thankfully for Noah, though, he had two other sons. And they had much greater respect for their father's honor. And so whatever they did, they went into that tent and they covered their father's nakedness. They... they, covered over his sin, rather than mocking him or telling other people about it. But Lot is not in that situation. Lot doesn't have as many surviving relatives, and both of his daughters conspire to get him into the shameful behavior. He's not defended by any of his children. In fact, he's taken advantage of. But still, the parallels are there. So there's quite a few parallels between these two stories, wouldn't you say? now at this point in the story I, I was accused the last time I preached this of digging a hole that I was never going to get out of so if you imagine me right now I'm digging and I'm going to keep digging and I promise I will get out um, and I hope I'll take you with me I'm persuaded that Noah's shame should be considered far less culturally severe than Lot's. We're just not told what it is, but it probably was less severe. But nonetheless, both found themselves involved in various degrees of sin, despite the judgment of God they had witnessed. They just saw God destroy the the whole earth, and both of them. The first thing they do is get drunk. Well, what's the significance of these stories, and what might they say to us? Now, I do want to say, and this is going to be a little hard for us, I guess, I want to suggest that Noah's and Lot's inebriated behaviors, the things they do while drunk, do seem intended to reveal something about human nature, something that remains substantially unaltered in the wake of God's judgment and even their salvation. Now appreciating that revelation though it's it's difficult in traditions like ours which have come to understand all drinking of alcohol as a beverage as incompatible with godliness. Now I would never question that stand. We have good reasons for requiring our people uh, the, that kind of behavior of our people of abstaining from alcohol consumption. But this was not written by Nazarenes. You know that. Genesis was written by the tradition of Israel, by Jewish tradition. And in the Jewish tradition, alcohol consumption has oftentimes been viewed less negatively. We would think, probably in our tradition, those of us who have been raised in it for a long time, that the sin was just in Noah raising the glass to his lips. We have to kind of divest ourselves of that if we're going to understand probably what's going on here. It's the Jewish tradition, I think, that's going to help us better comprehend what these stories are trying to say. Now, I'm particularly interested in the Jewish understanding of the festival of Purim. Are you familiar with this festival? Purim is a festival still practiced by Jewish people today which commemorates the events of the book of Esther. And it occurs roughly a month before Passover and our Easter celebrations correspond with Passover. So it's about a month before Easter, still celebrated today, it was being celebrated in Jesus' day. And in that festival, one of the traditional practices is drunkenness. Each Jewish person is encouraged to drink wine until they cannot tell the difference between the Hebrew phrases Cursed be Haman and Blessed be Mordecai. Baruch Mordecai, Samu, Haman. Until they can't tell the difference between those two. Why would you encourage drunkenness? Don't we talk about Judeo-Christian ethics? Here's a, here's a quotation from a contemporary Jewish rabbi addressing that question. The Jewish people are asked that actually quite frequently. He says this, "...the essence of this holiday is not emotive or intellectual. It's best captured by the soul, not the brain or the heart. When the wine has dulled the brain, when coherent thought has ceased to function, and the Jew, despite his intoxicated state, remains committed to his religion, he's captured the spirit of Puri." In other words, for many leaders in the Jewish tradition, drunkenness reveals the inner character and commitments of a person in ways often concealed by the higher functions of the brain and the heart. Have you heard so many non-Jewish people say, but I was drunk, as though that excuses behavior? The Jewish tradition has said, what you do when you're drunk is who you are. The Latin tradition, which is more our Western tradition, had a similar saying, often attributed to Pliny the Elder, if you care. Um, may have originated with a Greek poet. In vino veritas est. You heard it? In wine there is truth. Now, whether that perspective has any truth to it or not is not appropriate to debate here, nor am I going to belabor that point. I'm certainly not encouraging drunkenness, nor do I agree with the Jewish practice. In fact, and this might be interesting for those of you who just like to take little notes here or there, the Apostle Paul may actually have been rejecting the festival of Purim specifically in the book of Ephesians, when he wrote, Do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He may have been prohibiting Christians from commemorating Purim. And interestingly enough, it's the only Jewish festival in practice in Jesus' day that Jesus is never said by the Gospel writers to have taken part in. So it's interesting anyway. So I'm not encouraging that, but I raise the issue not to commend the behavior, but because I'm convinced that the narrative of Genesis has assumed this sort of a revealing quality of alcohol. In other words, for the writers of Genesis, the drunkenness of Noah and the drunkenness of Lot revealed their true natures. And both men at their cores, maybe more surprising for Noah than for Lot, were in fact corrupt. Take away their their faculties and they will sin. In fact, this recognition of the corruption that permeates humanity seems to be the dominant theme of both stories. And that is why I've titled the first point, The Pervasiveness of Sin. This conviction is probably best expressed in Genesis chapter 8. So I'll invite you, if you're not there, to turn back to Genesis 8. And I'm going to begin reading now in verse 20. This is what God says, Just after the flood, Noah and the animals are coming out of the ark. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And then this is where we are. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. I thought he spared the righteous one. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And then, uh, one of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture to me... Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Didn't God just destroy the whole earth because of the evil that was in it? And now he confesses that the human heart is only evil, and then he says, Be fruitful and fill the earth again. Whatever God's judgment had accomplished, whatever God's reasons for sparing any humans at all, it had not led to the transformation of Noah or of Ham. Nor had it led to the transformation of Lot or of his daughters. In fact, in the words of Genesis 8, every inclination of the human heart remained evil from childhood. And even more, for some undisclosed reason, God went on and told these thoroughly corrupted people to go fill the earth and subdue it again. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a close friend, and he's still a close friend. He had spent the larger portion of his life living pretty self-centeredly pretty licentiously. Not a very godly life. And by the time of our conversation, he had walked away from that life. He had embraced the call of Jesus. And he had invested himself deeply in the church and in the life of discipleship. So it was a success story. I was proud to be his friend. Um, He was just a wonderful human being who had come from so much and had given his heart so thoroughly to God. However, in that conversation, he asked me a question that perplexed me to no end. He said, Should I feel guilty? feel guilty or remorseful for the life that I lived before coming to Jesus? Should I feel it? Should I feel that that life was evil, that it was shameful? Should I not want it anymore? When I inquired as to why he was asking those sorts of questions, he confessed that in his heart of hearts, when he was really honest with himself, he looked back on that life with fondness. He felt no evil or shame, he didn't feel it in his previous behaviors. In fact, he wished he could return to some of them. He had walked away from that life, and I think this says something about his character, not because he felt the evil of those choices or because he agreed wholeheartedly with God's estimation of them, but because he was convicted that Jesus was the God of all creation and Jesus said they were wrong and Jesus knew more than he did. And so he had turned away from the lifestyle. Now... What I think that conversation confirmed in me is something that I think the prophetic tradition of Israel was getting at in the story of Noah and of Lot. Our human nature, the world in which we live, the circles and cycles in which we find ourselves have become so permeated by corruption that by and large we've lost the capacity as a people to comprehend and long for the world to be entirely as God would want it to be. Now I'm not saying we're all like my friend who have no... Remorse, or pain, or grief over our sins. I'm sure we do. The ones we know about. In the cases of Noah and of Lot, inebriation revealed them for what they were. Essentially not that different from the people God had just destroyed. And I'm certainly not saying that as people were incapable of identifying any evil... But I do think it's safe to say that even Christians should be wary of trusting our own senses of right and wrong completely. There's some humility, perhaps, we can learn here. Okay, so at this point, I'm I'm underground. You can't see me anymore. Am I going to get out? I don't know. So the story of Lot and his daughters reveal how corrupt we as people are, even among those who've been saved from God's judgment. I mean, that's at the essence. Now, that's not really earth-shattering news. Maybe it is for some. I mean, maybe there are some here who are thought that they were pure as the driven snow, that the Holy Spirit had so taken them over that they might as well be possessed by the Holy Spirit and everything they think, everything they say, everything they do, every opinion that they have, every impression that they have is just God. You know, they might as well be God in the flesh. Maybe there are some here, and this will be earth-shattering news for you, I suppose. That's not me, and probably not most of us. We understand our brokenness and our need. But that's more of a foundational observation for what I think is at stake in these stories. As graphically as they depict the despicable lengths to which humans are capable of going to satisfy our own needs and desires, they also reveal something less dire and more hopeful. And this is the heart of the sermon. Have you ever stopped to consider the depths of evil out of which God has worked to bring good? We're all here descendants of Noah. Apparently, he was corrupt. And even more, I'm glad that God spared him. I don't know if you are. And even more, it was one of Noah's descendants, Abraham, that God chose to bring redemption and salvation to the whole of humanity. So this mercy is good for us. Abraham, too, was corrupt, though, and his story has ugliness of its own. He's not pure as the driven snow. Abraham's grandchildren, Jacob and Esau, were no less duplicitous, and Jacob's children conspired to sell their brother Joseph into slavery. I mean, this is not reading Genesis is not like reading the, uh, the kind of family you'd want to grow up in. Their descendants, the Israelites, tested God time and time again and eventually became so entrenched in evil that God destroyed them as He had destroyed the earth and the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, 18 and 19. In fact, Israel was so bad itself... That in Jeremiah's prophecies, the prophet declared Moab and Ammon, the two nations that came from incest, to be no worse than the nation of Israel itself. God has used pretty horrible people. But even more, and this is the greatest hope, I don't know if you've ever come across this. In Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 47 after a quite a morbid listing of curses and predictions of horrible destruction that God was going to bring on Moab, one of the nations who came from incest. At the end of that, the passage concludes with these words. And remember... This passage in Jeremiah is about the future restoration of all things. It's about the salvation God would bring to the earth at the end. It's about Israel being reestablished as the capital of the earth. It's about what we associate happened with Jesus and the incarnation and the salvation of all humanity. This is the context of Jeremiah's prophecy. And look at what he says about Moab. Chapter 48, verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in days to come, declares the Lord. And then a few verses later, speaking of Ammon, in chapter 49, verse 6. Remember, Ammon is Moab's brother, also born of incest. Yet afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Is it amazing to you that God's plan of restoration at the end includes even these descendants of incest? In fact, through all these corrupt generations and failed pursuits of righteousness, God has brought the message of redemption and salvation to us all. Irrespective of our histories and genealogies, all humans have been offered salvation through Israel and by the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. God has brought is bringing and will bring good out of seemingly intractable evil. Can you imagine those two nights in that cave? How could any good ever come from that? And yet God in His grace will save Moab and Ammon. Jesus' teaching has not promised that only good would come to His people. Quite to the contrary, the pervasive corruption of humanity and the world which we inhabit almost guarantees that each of us will be touched by evil at some point in our lives, some to much greater degrees than others. And that's a question we'll all have for the Lord, why we didn't equally share the suffering. But we will all be touched by it. Maybe some here today are being touched by it now. We may suffer for our own evil. We may suffer for the evil of others. We may suffer for the evil which has corrupted this world and has made it so inhospitable to our lives and thriving. We think of the hurricane crashing down on the East Coast today as one of those consequences, perhaps. The hope of God is not that evil will be eradicated on this side of eternity. The hope of God is that there is no amount or quality of evil out of which God in His sovereignty and providence cannot bring good. No place is so dark that God's light cannot shine there. Of course, this good, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, has been reserved for those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. But for those of us who have repented of our sins, who have committed with our lives and our hearts to follow Jesus and have determined to cooperate with God and His Holy Spirit's work in us to create us into beings made in His image, beings that resemble the example of Jesus Christ, for those of whom that is true, we need fear no evil. For God is with us when violence like that I discussed in our introduction in the Middle East erupts, when corruption seems to have intractably entrenched itself in the cultures of the earth, when sickness and disease threaten to overwhelm us, when there seems to be no end to the human capacity for sinfulness and creative wrongdoing, when nature itself seems intent on taking away our life and thriving, God's people must not despair. We serve a God who has worked His will and His way in spite of unspeakable evils, innumerable monsters. Hitler couldn't stop God's grace from eventually coming. Neither can we. An unfathomable suffering. Maybe you found yourself in those sorts of moments. I certainly have. Or if you find yourself in them even now in your present, might I encourage you this morning... All these things will be redeemed. Good will overcome. God will work all things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We must persevere in our faith just a little longer. We must hold on to our trust in God for just a few more hours until this dark night has passed. We must trust the voice that has called to us in the darkness of our despair and has said, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. But perhaps some here this morning have allowed the deepening darkness of life in this place to blind them from the hope that God has offered to us. Maybe we've been unable to see past the despicableness of Lot and his daughters. Maybe we read up to the point that we saw them in that cave and that we couldn't see any further. That's it. This place is so dark. This is so evil. This is not a book I want to read. This is not a life I want to live. This is not a God I want to worship. There can't even be a God. Look at that cave! And we've been unable to conceive of the descendants of those sins to whom God has offered salvation. The children born of that who God has taken and turned their lives and has promised them restoration in the kingdom of God. Are you ready to trust God despite these things? Are you ready to believe that one day God's good will overcome? Will you commit yourself to this God and labor with Him to persevere until that day? Can I beg you this morning that you not leave here this morning? without giving Him your heart and your trust? Perhaps the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today and you feel that you need to make that kind of decision. There are a lot of ways you can do that. My favorite in the church of the Nazarene and one that has transformed me time and time again is the willingness to stand up in the midst of God's people and to come forward and kneel at these altars and say, I need the Lord. Maybe the Lord will move you to do that. You can pray in your chair or you can find me after the service and we can talk, anything that is most comfortable. But may I beg you, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today, that you not leave this place without getting things right with God, without putting your faith in Him. Would you stand with me? If you would close your eyes and bow your heads, and with all eyes closed and heads bowed, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today and you know that you need to give, do business with God, you need to put your faith in God despite the darkness, or perhaps you are a manufacturer of the darkness in which you find yourself and you have not been willing to believe that God's way is the right way, perhaps today you need to take hold of the truth that God doesn't want you in that cave. God wants you in His kingdom.